You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. This is Easter evening. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace, everybody say peace. Peace. Everybody say Salem. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples, everybody say then. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then something dangerous. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's terrifying. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit first. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight. Everybody say eight. Eight. Jesus is slow. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Everybody say again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said... Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to Thomas, for all of us, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those in 2021 on Delavan Avenue who have not seen and yet believed. The gospel of the Lord. Glory to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. John, can you hand me one of those towels right there, please? Right there. I don't have my mask on, so I don't want to come down. Or Sal or somebody, just hand it on over. I am pouring sweat. My wife is pregnant. I'm scared to death. I'm pouring sweat. Here we are. I'm going to open my book and see if we could have a sermon today. John, John's gospel, the last one written, writing after he knows all the stories. What an advantage John has. We are in a series called Strengthen Our Hands, and we know that nail-scarred hands are strong hands in the kingdom of God, hands that love at an expense of themselves. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And every disciple looks at their hands and says, when are we going to get marks to love our neighbor as ourselves? Every disciple says, when is my back? going to get some scars on it to love my neighbor as myself. If he truly meant in the same way that the Father sent me and we just saw him on Good Friday, when are our hands going to become nail-scarred hands? John is writing a new Genesis, and I think it's really important that we know what's going on in this moment with the disciples locked in an upper room. It's very interesting what's happening. John begins his gospel with the phrase, In the beginning, he's writing a new Genesis. He's the last one to write a gospel. He has more information than anybody has. He now has already written the book of Revelation. 
And now they're asking him, before you pass away, can you please write about the life of Jesus? And he sits down and says, with all the revelation God has now given me in my life, as the sun is getting ready to set on me, how do I start this story? He's already penned the book of Revelation. He's got more in him. That's why I think his gospel ends by saying, if everything that I have in me was written, all the books in all the world couldn't contain what I would have to say. So with so much to say but only limited space, how do I start? And he says, here's what we'll do. We'll start rewriting the entire canon of Scripture in the beginning. And he starts to rewrite the story because he knows a new seven days has just begun in place of the old seven days. The church of Sunday is now existing in a world of Monday. The church of hope is now existing over top a world of brokenness and, and despair. Jesus enters an upper room as a perfect, infinite being in a world of imperfect, broken disciples. Sunday enters the locked room of Monday and begins to say things that no man at the moment has ever seen or heard before. This is why the disciples look at Jesus, and in John's gospel it says that they knew it was Jesus, but they dared not ask him who he was. They knew it was Jesus, but they didn't ask him who he was because something in them knew it was Jesus, but something else in them said, but yet we've never seen anything quite like this before. Sinful flesh has not seen flesh that is no longer decaying under the curse of sin. All they ever knew of Jesus, the flesh that they touched, the flesh that touched them, the hand that healed blind eyes, was the likeness of sinful flesh. It was flesh they could understand. Now they're seeing flesh that is from an entirely different place. And they know it's him, but they don't know. Because humanity struggles. We know people who think they're perfect. Somebody? We know people who walk around like they're perfect. But no one's ever actually seen somebody. We wouldn't know how to recognize it. So tell that arrogant person at your job, if they're recognizable, they ain't perfect. If they were so perfect, no one would know who they are, which is the opposite of the thing they probably want anyway. Boom, mic drop. Get them. John wants you to know that this is a new Genesis. Even more amazing, this is now Easter Sunday. And how does he begin this story? This is the first time that Jesus is meeting the disciples. And he begins it by saying, on the evening of the first day of the week. So look at what John has done. John has started his gospel off with in the beginning, and then he gives seven signs throughout his gospel revealing the redemption of the seven days of creation. The final sign in his gospel is the cross, the ultimate Sabbath, the it is finished of God. And then, now that the seven days have been redeemed, now he says on the evening of the first day of the week. Well, how many know in Genesis that the evening and the morning are the first day? Read Genesis 1 and 2 a lot. The evening and the morning are how a day begins. So here is John writing on the evening of the first day of the week, at the beginning of the brand new seven days of creation. Something has completely started over. 
everything is completely new. It is now the beginning of new beginnings. As the church has historically called it, it's the eighth day of the week, the divine octave of Easter, the time when the new week overlaps the old week to call the old week up into itself and give it the ministry of reconciliation. Look what happens in Genesis. At the end of Genesis, you have divided brothers. Joseph trying to reconcile a family whose his brothers threw him into a well and sold him into slavery. And Genesis ends with his brothers very concerned that Joseph is going to get back at them for what they did to him. And then you rewind a little bit from there, and you have Jacob and Esau, brothers manipulating and stealing and treating each other horribly. Rewind from there, and you have Isaac and Ishmael, brothers that are antagonizing each other and treating each other shamefully so that one needs to be separated from the other, and a whole family is divided because brothers are falling apart again. Joseph and his brothers, Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael, Cain and Abel, Noah's sons. There's division among siblings all throughout the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is about the downfall of brothers and sisters, sibling relationships that have gone astray. This might be why Exodus begins with Moses and Aaron, a new pair of brothers pointing to something greater that would bring redemption. You all really need to read your Bible a lot. It's an incredibly accurate and amazing divinely inspired, for your life today kind of book. It all goes awry because in a moment of opportunity, Adam says to his wife, you're the one who made us do this. And Eve looks at creation and says, the world around me made me do it. Instead of forgiveness, there's accusation. And when they break, their generations cannot get it together. And then Jesus shows up, and he tells a story of two brothers. One left and squandered his inheritance, and one stayed and obeyed. But then at the end of the story that Jesus never actually finishes, the younger brother is home celebrating, and the older brother is mad at the younger brother, and you have siblings divided yet again, but the funny thing is, the older brother doesn't like the younger brother. That's why he won't go inside. Have you ever met somebody who the minute they don't like something, they take their ball and go home? But here's the other thing. The younger brother is inside enjoying his party, not interested to go out and talk to the older brother either. He always gets a free pass. But he'd rather be in his party than help. He'd rather be celebrated than go out and say, hey, can we fix this? He'd rather have the attention than go out and say, we should probably talk. And the story ends with brothers divided. And everyone looking at Jesus saying, how? They know, they're Jewish, they know all these brothers for the entire Bible falling apart before our very eyes. How is this ever going to get healed, Jesus? And then in the Gospel of Luke, the only reverse genealogy in the entire Bible. Luke ends with, and Adam, the son of God. 
and Adam, the son of God. So if Adam is the son of God, and Jesus is the son of God, then that makes Jesus and Adam brothers. And Jesus says, Adam, let's talk. Let's fix this. Let's make this right. Let's get it together. Because we need the church. We need these brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to get it together. And Jesus reconciles himself to his brother. And all of these families are healed. This is why when the seven days of creation are done in Genesis, and they're living, Adam and Eve are living in the new week of creation, they sin, and God comes to find them, and what are Adam and Eve doing behind the trees? They're hiding. On the first day of the new creation, Adam and Eve are hiding. And God comes. What have you done? On the first day after Easter... Jesus goes and finds disciples who are behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Do you see this connection? This time, Adam is coming and saying, bride of Christ, Eve, the disciples, the church, let's, let's come out from hiding. Let's not be behind these trees. Let's not be behind these locked doors anymore. And what is the first thing Jesus says? He doesn't say, disciples, where are you? What is the first thing? What is the first thing the resurrected Messiah says to his disciples? He says, peace. Meaning, we're okay. I know the minute I just showed up in this locked room, you all thought, oh my God. He knows what we've done. Those scars are our fault. Think of Joseph's brothers. As soon as this is all done, as soon as our father dies, Joseph is going to kill us. And Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God has meant for the good. And here's Jesus, the true and better Joseph, going to the true and worse brothers and saying, I know you sold me on Good Friday for 30 pieces of silver, but don't worry. Peace be with you. We're good. And then he breathes on them and says, receive my very life so that you can leave these locked doors and go to the world and tell them we're good. It's okay. You can unlock the doors now. How many of you know somebody who's the doors of their soul have been locked for a long time? Somebody who's, how many of you been in a locked room before because it feels safer? Because people don't know. And it's safe when you live in a world where people don't know. Here's what we need to do, church. Here's how we begin to celebrate Easter. We look at the reaction of God to us, the experience of God in Jesus acting on the church, and then we take that experience and we become that experience for the world. So we don't just receive it, but then we become it and offer it. So we have to experience it in order for it to house itself in our very bodies, and then we leave with the peace be with you of Easter in our very bones. So what does Jesus do first? Jesus offers peace. He says we're okay. Listen, peace is the only environment where correction can ever take place. 
Mom and dad, hear this. Peace is the only environment where correction can take place. Jesus saying we're good doesn't mean Jesus doesn't need to say you're also grounded. Jesus saying we're good doesn't mean Jesus isn't saying we still have stuff we need to talk about. Peace is Jesus saying, let me set the atmosphere now so that you know that I will always accept you, so that when I bring stuff up that we need to talk about, you know that your behavior and our relationship are not going to be affecting each other. I will always be for you. That's why you can put your worst on the table. I will always be for you. That's why you can come out from behind the trees, Adam and Eve. I will always be for you. That's why you can unlock these doors. And just so you know, church, if you don't unlock the doors, my new resurrected body's pretty cool anyway. But Jesus, when he needs to knock, he does. Revelation chapter 4. When Jesus needs to break and enter, he does it with peace. Salem, we live in a world right now where there are people out there where if we knock, they won't answer. And our sinful nature says, well, they didn't respond to me, therefore I'm off the hook. I've been reaching out to this person for a long time. They haven't reached back out to me. I'm good now. I've done what I'm supposed to do. Not right now. Silence is the new cry for help. Imagine a lifeguard with somebody drowning under the water saying, do you want me to help you? They didn't say anything. I just saw bubbles. I'm off the hook. No. Go in and get them. And when you go in to get them and you're down there pulling them out of the water, don't tell them they shouldn't have dove in headfirst in that moment, please. Just get them out. (laughs) Make sure they're healthy. Make sure they're alive. Make sure they're well. And then we can talk about don't dive in headfirst. When you do have to enter somebody's life who's not answering your calls, you can only do it with peace. I'm not here to disrupt anything. I'm just here to tell you we're good. Well, pastor, we're not allowed to go to their house, and they're not answering my calls. You know what? Then send them dinner and let it just sit on their front porch, and if it goes bad, don't worry. The gesture won't go bad. By the way, did anybody send us Boston Market? Because we got it... (laughs) on our front porch, waited a whole 24 hours. No one claimed it, so we ate it, and it was delicious, but we were just wondering. Okay. It's a very true story. Doreen was there. He enters with peace because peace is the only way to allow somebody who has a locked soul to even have the chance to begin talking. We're good. I'm just here to tell you that we're good. In your mind, is there a lot to talk about? Yeah. But first, just know we're good. If Jesus doesn't do that, Adam and Eve should not come out from hiding. If Jesus doesn't do that, people are right when they say, if I walk into the church, lightning is going to strike me. But the reason why lightning doesn't strike people who walk in here is because Jesus is out there saying, we're good, come on in. We'll talk to you about the other stuff, and we need to talk about the other stuff. We can't live a good Christian life and good Christian witness if we don't talk about the other stuff. 
We need somebody to get up in our business and say, you're dating wrong, you're talking wrong, you're parenting wrong, you need, you're, there's some idolatry in your life. We need people to do that. We need a pastor who will do that. I need people in my life who will do that. We need to do that with each other. But first, peace. And when that atmosphere has been established, then there can be a discussion about the vulnerabilities and the wrongdoings. But only when we say, before we have this conversation, Elder Bill, before we talk about this issue between us, first, let's both agree we're good. And then we can have the conversation. And I mean, honestly, the things I have against Elder Bill are just long and many, and there's zero things. (laughs) And if somebody has anything against Elder Bill, I have something against you. You're crazy. What's the next thing he does? He enters uninvited, says, peace be with you, and then he reveals his scars. You're going to like this one. He reveals his scars. And what do those disciples, the minute he reveals his scars, they're like, this is not good. This is not good. We did this. I know what he's going to say next. Look what you've done. He reveals his scars and doesn't say anything. And all of a sudden, they go from Joseph's brothers like, oh man, now he's, he's got proof that we did something. And then it says, and they were glad when they saw the Lord. Because they didn't see him as Lord until they saw his scars, because his scars are what make him Lord. You hide the thing that makes you holy. It isn't until they see scars that they know he's the Lord. And we hide our scars because we think if they see my scars, they're not going to think highly of me, but you're hiding the thing that makes you holy. It isn't until they see the fact that he died and is risen that they know he can even be called Lord. And what do his scars do? Listen to this. Fifty-some-odd days later, Peter begins to preach. Peter. Just for one second, please don't romanticize the Bible. Pretend Peter is one of those friends that you have, and you saw them do something horrible, and now they're about to stand up and correct you about you doing the thing they just did. So please get your head out of the Bible for a second and make Peter, you know, Diane or somebody from the office and and make them that person, okay? Pick the person in your life who you know would do something horrible and then judge you for doing the thing that they did. Hear that person right now. Okay? While the man clung to Peter and John, all the people were utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power we have made him well? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Peter, you're really calling us out for denying him? You're really going to put us out there right now? Where were you when he was dying? What did you say when the servant girl said, you're one of them, you sound like Jesus? 
What did Jesus say to you when you said, I'll be the only one who will, not, who will go with you all the way to death? And Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. And now you're standing here telling us we can't deny, we've denied him, and we should repent because of it? What gives Peter the gall to call this out? I will tell you. Have you ever had somebody say to you before, you can't call me out on this because you've done it too? Has anybody ever tried to discredit what you're saying because you didn't live right in a different area? I want to tell you right now that is the stupidest thing that we could ever do to each other. And here's a funny example about why it's so dumb to do that. Me and you are going someplace. We're taking separate cars. I say, here's how you get there. You take 87 North. I'm on 87 North, and it turns out we should have been on 87 South. So I call you. I turn around way up in the Adirondacks. I'm like, oh, we were going to the city. Oopsie daisies. I call you and say, Dan, the way I told you to go is the wrong way. Don't go the way I went. And you say, well, you went that way, so I'm going to also is the dumbest thing you could ever say. Because I now have authority to tell you this was the wrong way. Don't go this way. But you did. I know, that's why I can tell you not to go this way. When Jesus revealed scars, it showed Peter that he had done something wrong. It showed Peter that he's still forgiven. It showed Peter that other people are also doing this wrong. And it showed people that other people can also be forgiven. And he's got to tell the world, you can be forgiven for doing the thing that I've done. And the world is going to say back, don't talk to me, you've done it too. And Jesus' wounds secure Peter to be okay with that. We have to, you don't have to experience a divorce to be able to speak to one. That's the other side of this. You don't have to have murdered somebody to be able to tell people, thou shall not murder. But when you have done something wrong, and you have received forgiveness, and you have asked for forgiveness, and you are living to make this relationship right as Peter is, you do have authority to warn people that way is the wrong way. And his scars are no longer in an indictment that you did something wrong. They're proof that you did something wrong, but they're also proof that the one who had the wrong done to them is saying, peace be with you. We're good. So go tell others that have made the same mistake, we're good. And finally, Jesus is consistent he, the, the women tell the disciples, he's risen. They don't believe them until they see the scars. He said, peace be with you. He showed them the scars. Then they were glad. After they saw John's gospel, Peter runs into the tomb. He doesn't believe that Jesus rose when he heard it. It says that he looked into the tomb and saw and believed. So Jesus shows up in the upper room. He shows up behind the new 
Adam and Eve trees, the locked doors, the safety of people who agree with me, the safety of people who won't call me out on my stuff, the safety of people who, who let me hide my scars. He shows up in that place, doesn't ask them to unlock the doors, doesn't condemn them for being afraid, doesn't say Christians shouldn't be walking in fear, proves to them that he's risen from the dead, gives them the Holy Spirit. So now these people are filled with the knowledge that Jesus is risen and filled with the Holy Spirit. And where are they eight days later? Out in the marketplace preaching the gospel? Where are they eight days later? Hiding still. Hiding still. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the gospel. Filled with the good news. Hiding still. And what happens? Jesus, Jesus shows up again and says, peace be with you. The man has the lowest expectations of any Messiah in the history of the universe. I think I've already expected more of Sophia than Jesus has ever expected of me. He shows up eight days later, and we're hiding still. And he's like, peace be with you, we're good. Any one of us will be like, Jesus, look at them. They're walking in fear. They know you've risen. They know that the Romans and the Jews can't hurt you. They're still hiding. And Jesus like, just, this is the best they can do. Just let's say peace be with you again. He's consistent. Jesus doesn't have just one good act of valor in him for you. He's got a never-ending supply of peace be with you. Jesus will never stop saying to you, peace be with you. You mess it up with your kids, he's still going to say, peace be with you. You mess it up in your marriage, he's still going to say, peace be with you. You get sick and you get mad and you get angry, he's still going to say, peace be with you. You lose your job and blame it on him, he's still going to say, peace be with you. You backslide and have a crazy season in your life, I can speak from experience. He's going to annoy you in your backsliding by still saying, peace be with you. I can think of nights where I was doing no good so far away from where you see me now, and he still wouldn't shut up with peace be with you. If you haven't noticed, God, I'm trying very hard to drown you out because I don't want to hear the rest of what comes with peace be with you. It's cool. Peace be with you. Obnoxious. Loving, caring, and perfect. He's consistent. Do we try once with people or maybe twice? Watch them absolutely slap us in the face and say, that's it, they can come to me now? He doesn't stop. And when you don't answer, it says, behold, I stand. I love the phrase. We focus on the knock. But he says, behold, I stand. I will be here when you open this door. I will park myself right here. He's got, he's got a little, one of them fake Adirondack chairs. He's got a Bluetooth Bose speaker. He's got some earbuds, and Jesus is going to sit at the door until you open it. And you're sitting there like, all right, you know what? He's eating. Eventually, he's going to get hungry. Why does his food keep multiplying out there? He's never gonna, it's never going to go out. He's got coffee. He's been drinking that same coffee. It's been hot for the last seven weeks. How is he doing this? He's just sitting there waiting for you to open the door. And when you open, he's like, oh, hey. I was just in the neighborhood. No, you've been stalking the outside of my house for the last. He won't stop. He's consistent. 
how can we receive this goodness? How can we receive a God who enters our life with peace first, not pointing out everything we've done? The only one ever qualified to cast a stone is the one who never even needed to be told to drop the stones in the first place. The only one who is without sin and can cast a stone is the only one who never even had a stone in his hands to begin with. How can we receive such peace and not constantly and consistently offer it? Not just to each other, but I'm going to be honest. Here first. Here first. That's not selfish or elitist. It has to happen here first. We have to be good with each other here. You weren't at the Easter egg hunt. There's a lot of young children that I stood in that parking lot and thought, oh my goodness, this is terrifying. Can we do this? Are we ready for this? There's a lot of young children in this church. Are they going to grow up seeing brothers and sisters divided that can't get it together? Or are they going to know that Jesus and Adam have reconciled their relationship and so can we? That has to happen first. Our witness is silenced if it's not happening here. We can't go out there and say, Salem, peace be with you, if it's not happening in a room called Salem to begin with. Maybe in the worst of relationships, we start by, let's put the issues on hold for a second. Let's, let's wait for the Holy Spirit to show, us, show up and teach us how to do this. What does he say? If you forgive others, it will be forgiven, and if you withhold it, it will be withheld. He's telling us the power that we walk around with. Adam and Eve somehow were given the power by God to cultivate or destroy the world he created. And the minute you hear, if I don't forgive somebody, then they won't experience that forgiveness. How do I do that? Because I'm really angry and I'm really wounded and there's a lot going on. Here's the Holy Spirit. That's how you do it. There is not an argument my wife and I will ever get in, from the smallest to the largest, that without the Holy Spirit can ever be reconciled. And there is not an argument that my wife and I will ever get in that with the Holy Spirit can't be. No matter what, without the Holy Spirit, even the smallest argument will destroy you. And no matter what, with him, it can be reconciled because of Easter Sunday, because we're rebuilding the world in hope. There's something more than what happened. There's something more than what's in your face. There's a hope against hope. There's a hope that laughs at the hope of the secular world and says there's something better than this. John is concluding the Adam and Eve narrative by saying, don't go out and be like they were. Don't go out and destroy creation and blame each other. Forgive and it will be forgiven. That may be our one insight into if God said, hey, come out from behind the tree. And Adam and Eve came out and God said, what happened? And Adam said, here's what happened. The serpent was tempting my wife. I never stepped in and said anything like you did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Adam stayed quiet, and Jesus said to his bride, wake up, lest you fall into temptation. Jesus spoke in the garden when Adam was silent. Anyway, 
That was just for you men. Enjoy. Back to where I was. If Adam would have said, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. And if Eve would have said, yeah, I did too, I'm sorry. Maybe God would have come a different way and not needed to go on that. If you forgive, it will be forgiven. But I can't. Here's the Holy Spirit. And here's a whole group of people called the church that will help you get there. We cannot do this without each other. We are not a collective group of individuals who show up for a concert on Sunday. We are a family that needs each other to live the rest of the Christian life. I cannot lift a finger to preach anything if it's not for the love and support that happens from you to me. But also, here's what else I feed off of. I feed off of your love and support for each other. I've seen some of you have a moment that's very negative with each other, maybe in one of the book studies that we've had. And then I drive home from work and see those two same people walking down Main Street with each other having a conversation. That gives me life and strength. There was a moment that looked like a relationship could break, and now I'm looking at these people having a conversation, healing it. That gives me strength. That, preaches, that lets me know Easter is real. Let's stand to our feet this morning. One more thing that needs to be said as we come to the table. What is the first phrase that we put in front of Thomas's name? We all knew it right away because we all listened to the gossip. I don't ever want to hear him called Doubting Thomas again. Here's what I want to hear him called. I want him to be called Refreshingly Honest Thomas. Every one of the disciples did not believe until they saw. Every one of them. And when the ten disciples saw, what was their response? We're glad. When Thomas saw, what was his response? My Lord and my God. He might have been the least doubting of all. Because when he saw what he was looking for, he rightly named who Jesus was. Everyone believed only after they saw. No one believed when they first heard. It's not that Thomas didn't doubt. It's that everyone did. And the first lesson of Easter I want us to leave with is, who have we misnamed to hide what we've done? Close your eyes for a moment. Everyone doubted. Everyone. But somehow, the gossip scapegoated Thomas as the doubter. Who in our lives have we named the sin that we commit? You have no idea how much I cannot wait to have an altar call so I could be the first one. Who do we call? Who do we identify 
as being a person who sins the way that deep down we know we actually sin and it takes all the pressure off when we just put that sin on that other person. I'm going to say something very scandalous right now. Take the title off that person and put it on Jesus. He's the one who said, take all of your sins and call me them. Call me the doubter. I, took, I know where to take it. Call me the cheater. I know where to take it. Call me the abuser. I know where to take it. Call me the lazy one. I know where to take it. Jesus is the priest of all priests. The one who took all of the sin and lived with it as if it was his own. So that we can take those names off of each other. Knowing that one day when we see those people, they will have a name that no one had ever uttered except for the Lamb of God himself. And we will be indicted when we hear their new name because it wasn't the name we've been calling them. Salem, I want you to hear this point so bad, I can't even tell you. This is the beginning of Easter, is lifting labels off of people. And knowing that Jesus is lifting the label off of you that you may have been calling yourself. You think you're no good? I became no good for you. No one had any use for a Messiah hanging on a tree. You feel useless? I became useless for you. You feel rejected? I became rejected for you. You feel denied and misunderstood? I was denied and misunderstood my whole life. So whether you place that label on another or whether you're walking around with the weight of that label on yourself, just see the Holy Spirit taking it off you right now. And in place of the label, peace be with you. And the label goes to the cross. And the label dies on the cross. And Jesus is raised without the labels because there are no more. There's only a new name. In your life, there's a new name. In the life of the people you see around you, walk around looking at them knowing that they will have a new name. And it won't be the one you've been calling them. Liberal, conservative, anti, pro, all these, there's so many of them. Can we be the people that first see flesh and blood that Jesus wants to rename as something we won't even know until we're in heaven with him. Let the name that is above every name teach us to rename each other. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, everyone's saying he's alive. But we're leaving because we know he's not. No one called them the doubting duo. We just scapegoated somebody. Let's not do that. There's somebody in all of our lives that we've put a title on that is really the title we bear that we're ashamed of. Take it off. Take it off them. Take it off yourself. Why don't you put your hands out for a moment? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take 
take these labels that we've put on ourselves, that we've put on others. Take them out of our hands. Like Jonah, we need to be thrown out of the boat. We can't even jump. Got to take it. We're not, we're not capable of letting go of our comfort like that. Let's take it. And in place, let this meal be placed in our hands. Everybody hold your Eucharist cup. This is our new name. This is the way we're meant to view ourselves, and this is the way we are meant to view others. Jesus saying, I could call you deniers. I could call you betrayers. I could call you murderers. I could call you misunderstanders. But instead, your name will be the children of God that I'm going to bleed and die for. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would descend on these gifts. Don't just make them for us the body and blood of your son. Make them real. Help us to identify ourselves by this moment when you could have labeled us as the worst of the worst and instead you labeled yourself as our savior. The blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins, for the removal of this label. I pray that this meal would forever remind us that you've taken every label, that you are for us, and that even when people are against us, their against us is nowhere near as strong as your for us is. And may we also be that way for the world around us. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Would you partake with me this morning, Salem? Holy Spirit, we pray that you bless us as we go, that you would make your face shine upon us, that you would give us the grace to face everything that we're going to face this week and that we could be the kinds of people who see the world as having a new name, that there's a, there's a new Monday tomorrow, not the old broken one, but one that is giving life and giving freedom and reminding people that there's peace, that you and them are good. In your name we pray and everybody said, Salem, have a wonderful day. Grace and peace. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.